Hi, everybody. Welcome to Lost Explorers. My name is J. David Osborne. That is Chris Sacknes. I'm Chris, how are you doing this evening? David, uh, I'm I'm mixed. I'm on the one hand enormously grumpy, but I'm also really magically luminous with uh, a kind of wonderful trick, as in magic, that I got to pull off. I knew that this morning I was going to see my dermatologist for a checkup. People would probably know I've lived in the tropics a long time. I've had some major sort of skin cancer issues. And so the annual dermatology checkup is a little bit, you know, important. And my dermatologist happens to look very much like you if you had slightly shorter hair. (laughs) And I think that's very interesting. I think that's an interesting resonance. I really, I quite like him. He's, he's got a really, uh, I think he's doing very well financially. So he's very ebullient. Uh, but I happen to be down on the shore of Lake Mead over the weekend and on Sunday, as a matter of fact, and I saw him with his, he's a little, maybe a little bit older than you, but he's got three young children. And I was going to go over and say something, but I thought, no, look, I think, you know, doctors and, you know, deserve some privacy and they were involved in their own thing. But a little bit of wind came up and blew off his cap into the lake and the children were causing a a fuss and he was dealing with his wife and I think probably uh, some in-laws. So I let it go. But they walked back to their car and the cap was was drifting, sinking down into the harbor, the marina at Lake Mead. And I thought, well, look, I know the people in the in the shop, the boat shop and the rental place. And I said, look, uh, I, I'm just going to go dive for this cap that's sunk in. Can I borrow a swimsuit and just leave my clothes here? And they said, yeah, 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 you know, because they, they know me. And yeah, the lake is a little cold, but it's not that cold. And the water wasn't that deep. So I dove down and got the cap back Mm -hmm. and I, you know, I took it home and I dried it out and today I brought it in and, you know, the effect of that, it was like a magic trick Mm -hmm. because he hadn't seen me involved with his kids and his family and his in-laws and all this stuff. And it was like magic And it reminded me that, you know, a lot of what magic is, is just care and a little Mm -hmm. bit of effort and a little bit of planning and a little bit of sense of, well, surprise. And I got a really great feedback because he's a generous sort of warm dude who, who really is, you know, alive to life. And I got everything I wanted out of that. I'm not saying that every time we did something like that, we're going to get that sort of feedback. And we don't have the time and the energy to go jump in, you know, cold, weird desert lakes to retrieve some, you know, nominal stranger's cap very often. But in the moment, it was a really cool thing. And it made my trip to the doctor's office a little bit more exciting awesome i like that i like things like that because it's not very often you get to see 
the person on the other side of one of these magical occurrences, you know, it's very often like, oh, this thing returned to me. And now we're seeing the agent of that return, right? I was thinking about that a lot. As a matter of fact, a few weeks ago, I was thinking to myself, how many people are agents of synchronicity or other types of magic and they don't even know it? Yeah. I walk out of the house wearing a shirt that has a Carlsbad Caverns on it, right? And to somebody who I pass by in Walmart, say, maybe they just got back from Carlsbad Caverns or maybe they just booked a trip to Carlsbad. And I would never know. I'd never know that I was the agent of that, that I, my choosing to do that was enacting somebody else's synchronicity. Um, I think if this happens billions of times over, mm-hmm. you know, and, and we're not knowing. I mean, I think this is one of the things is that our mechanisms for the knowing, for the recognition, for a framework around that are really so i mean we're making some remarkable inductive leaps to to even think of it at all but really the induction there is is oftentimes simply the the ignorance of the swamp of all the things we don't know and just not being alert and and some things that we couldn't know but some things that we maybe just aren't attuned to enough you know yeah absolutely i gave my students an assignment in which they had to tell me what they did on fall break, but include two vocabulary words out of, I didn't give them five to choose from. I gave them 16 and they had to choose two and they did a pretty decent job on it. Writing a paragraph. There is a German exchange student, however, who turned in her work and the assignment was fine. There's nothing wrong with that. And I'm certainly not making fun of her for this, but she, in order to help her with the assignment, she wrote down two of the words and included their German translations uh, because that was helpful to her to think about it in German. One of the words that she chose was incessant. And incessant in German is unaufholisch. Nice. The other word she picked was duplicity, which is doppelzungigkeit. I thought I would share those German words with you because I thought they were fun, especially Doppelzungeguide. I think we should do a whole episode in German. Yeah. You know, see how that works, you know? I mean, yeah. it, how wrong could it get, you know? Yeah. yeah. It's it's the only, uh, one of the only European languages that is very structurally, almost exactly structurally similar to English because, mm-hmm. you know, the Romance languages do their adverbs backwards and that yeah. kind of stuff but german does it the same way uh english does english is unique for having a germanic structure with uh largely latin and or i should say romance language well no latin latin forms right latin latin words um but uh other than that i helped administer an act test today it was very boring uh, it's like watching paint dry and uh, but in good news, we we did we did purchase a house. So we will be moving in within 30. Well, days. I, I wanted to I, I was waiting to hear. I didn't want to ask because I you had mooted something about this uh, off mic um, in our other communications. Well, bravo. That's it a comes huge, with a storm shelter, step. comes with a tornado shelter. 
There you go. There you yeah. go. Mm-hmm. That's a good oaky thing. You need that. And and you know, I I no more sheltering in the bathtub. You know, no, no. And it's it. The thing about tornadoes is that it's so unlikely that one will actually hit your house to the point that it causes real damage or risk to life and limb. Very few people per year die of tornadoes. It just doesn't, it doesn't really happen that much, but in on the off chance that it does, there's nothing you can do. If you don't have a shelter, the hiding in the bathroom thing is like how they used to tell kids to get under their desk in the event of a nuclear explosion. It's more to make you and cover. Yeah. It's more to make yourself feel, feel better about what's about dying. You know, at least I'm doing something. Um, So I'm very happy about that. And uh, tomorrow I'm beginning to teach uh, Charlotte Perkins Gilman's The Yellow Wallpaper. Yellow Wallpaper, yeah. For for Halloween. I'm doing that. And I might follow it with uh, The Telltale Heart. It's it's very similar. Or I might take a trip into Lovecraft Country and do The Call of Cthulhu or The Shadow Over Innsmouth. Although those are a bit longer. Those would probably be full week units to really dig deep into it and i think that lovecraft in particular is such an interesting figure you know telling the kids about uh you know his for example his his what would probably be diagnosed today as severe autism uh the fact that he's a bit of a shut-in the racism uh in addition to just like allowing them to see where so many horror conventions originated from I think might be interesting too, but I'm also open to suggestions, scary stories for 11th graders. Uh, if you think well, of any, let me know. You know, my favorites, you know, I, I still love, and I, I think it's interesting to touch base with Washington Irving because in some ways he's so distant from us in terms of his actual prose style with his great works of Rip Van Winkle and the legend of Sleepy Hollow. I'm thinking of the legend of Sleepy Hollow, obviously for Halloween. Um, But it is a great story. I mean, the headless horseman is uh, a fantastic tale. And uh, one of the things I write about my book, sea monkeys is that the misconception and this is a wonderful thing about, you know, it's called Mondegreens, you know, when we misunderstand song lyrics and our misunderstandings are more interesting than what, you know, the actual intention is. But the Disney version talks about the ghosts and Van Cheese, or so my big sister and I thought, and we imagined Van Cheese in the Legend of Sleepy Hollow song when the spooks go, you know, and Van Cheese was this Hessian Dutch desiccated sort of monster potato head burlap sack, you know, creature come out of the graveyard of, you know, the war of 1812 or whatever. And was so much more interesting than, of course, it was the ghost in Banshees, you know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I, I think that celebrating the ghost story idea, uh, if you can, is is really, really a fun idea. And, and why horror 
and 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 things frightful continue to be so popular today. I mean, most I think that the writers that you and I know who have achieved the kind of success that that is uh, reasonable to hope for uh, have done so kind of in the horror genre. Um, mm-hmm. And I don't know if I'm personally into that anymore so much, but um, it's an interesting idea. But I think it is how indeed. fun is good. Indeed, indeed, indeed. I'll think about the legend of Sleepy Hollow. Do you have a band and an aphorism for us today? I do. I hope I can be forgiven. An eccentric billionaire. Not that we have any of those people around. An eccentric billionaire proposes a thought contagion idea. Can a billion dollar PR and marketing campaign create a new pop culture fad? The theory is called manufacture. Can you manufacture something utterly broken and intentionally warped and have it work like gangbusters and bacon anything? One of my students has come up with the idea of bacon anything, anything bacon, you know? The idea is a band called Spanky Panky. These hired and carefully briefed musician actors, all people of color, present an unlikely combo of calypso and polka two of the most annoying forms of popular music to ever find an audience. They blend this with the clever but dubiously lowbrow verbal form of the limerick. They match steel drums and accordions with a relentless video and image focus on women with very large bottoms getting spanked with hands old wooden rulers, fly swatters, ostrich feathers, you name it. The album is called The Blush of Cheeks. Some of the singles are On Your Knees, Sting and Tickle, The Wobble is Worth It, and Comeuppance Everywhere. Excellent. Will it break through? Will a billion dollars that could support an entire starving African nation create a new post-postmodern fad? That is the question. I think about that all the time. I think about that all the time. What if the eccentric billionaire in question Again, like you said, not that we have any of those. What if a budget was given to the things that I think are cool? Yeah. Would other people start to think that they were cool? My argument is yes, absolutely. absolutely. Well, I think this is the great, great question of our time. Because one segment of our current population, and certainly the intellectual educated population, argues that it is just about money in the sense of power and influence and platform, and that this will effectively create 
fads, trends, and deeper structures. I think that you and I are asking some deeper questions about can we even make a footpath or an ox cart path today, let alone a freeway, purely on the basis of money and power and platform. Can that be imposed upon minds today? I think this is the heart and soul question of, of some of the notions that, that we've been discussing in various forms. And I think some things we'll get to tonight. Um, but I'm with you. I, I, I really think that we want some more interesting eccentric billionaires with some more interesting ideas of what they're trying to put forward, because we are the ultimate laboratory on this planet for discovering some universal mystery principles. And I don't think many people are really interested enough in that. And those are the people who have the means to try. Yep. I would, I would definitely join Elon Musk's department of anomalous research as a, as a thinker and brainstormer. I would take that job faster than you could blink. I don't care who it is. Who's got the money. That sounds like a sweet job. Cause you know, I mean, we hear all these stories about the glory days of the sixties when money was being thrown at this kind of thing from the CIA and that CIA money allowed us to get a lot of cool stuff. Totally. Cool, totally. cool experiences. Well, I'm thinking about this in terms of, um, I'm not trying to do this all in one go, but I am doing a Lost Explorers manifesto. And I'm thinking about that optimistic vibe of that period when, when interest was coming in from a lot of dubious sources. But who cares? I mean, that's where a lot of the great stuff comes from. And all of the, the real crossroad nexus places of the inn, the bar, the university, you know, the weird phantom motel on the edge of the desert. That's where the strange people come and they bring their ideas. And that is what the marketplace in a more generic sense should be about. But somehow we sterilize the absolute hell out of everything and we're not getting uh, that richness of eccentricity and authenticity. Absolutely. What is your aphorism for today? Uh, I've been thinking in many other registers, but I wanted to bring it down to crotch level and heart level because I'm convinced we're not talking enough about love and we're certainly not talking about it from a male heterosexual point of view anymore. But I think this just stands alone without any explanation. More than ever, every romance needs some wham, bam, warm car hood on a cool night a stately 19th century style picnic and underwater action sequences. They couldn't hurt. Thunderball. Well, I think it's everything there. I mean, I think I've got like 1950s, you know, uh, on the road. I think I've got 19th century European art films and definitely Thunderball. Um, mm -hmm. 
And it's beautiful how underwater can be changed to underwear action sequences with a little word substitution. But I, I think we, we've got to work harder at, at, the, at bridging love and sex or love and lust. And I think that um, there isn't really any interest in, in kind of listening to the straight male perspective on that anymore. And I'm not sure about um, the gay perspective either. I just think we're losing the idea of romance as a genre. I think it's becoming sillier and sillier and more removed from the kinds of things that actually turn people on. And it's good for, uh, I think, certain art forms. I think it's getting more into the groove of uh well vegas music for instance i think i think you got to come back to vegas again we've got to do a couple of big shows it's there's some stuff that is starting to happen that gives me some encouragement and i i'm often not on the boil as you know with with uh certainly the world of the strip you know but sometimes i think that i can be that way a little bit more but i i think we got to work harder at, at romance. And I think that that hits at every age um, to link romance and lust. I mean, if, if you ask me about my issues with women across my life, and I don't think I'd be alone in this, I think it's kind of connecting those two things. And when you start to get children and play and jobs and sleep loss and worry about, you know, mortgage payments yeah it all becomes very difficult and our fantasy imaginative life slips more and more out of focus and everyone starts to look more and more ordinary and our tastes get lower and crasser and nastier and uh and we lose the magic in the nasty you know that's mm -hmm. really terrible you gotta we gotta keep the magic in the nasty somehow so i like that Magic and the nasty. What is my imaginative challenge for today? All right. Is that a good one? All right. Are those golf clubs in the, behind me? Behind you? Yes. yes. Jesus. Okay. God, it is a long way from Portland, isn't it? Yeah. Well, well, this is my uh, my father-in-law's garage, and those are. Nothing you see in in the background is actually actually belongs to me, but uh, yeah, I'm not I'm not into golf yet. It's cool, man. I'm just kidding. It's all right. Okay, so your imaginative challenge has the ironic title of "Big Girl Panties." Okay. We are looking at a movie scenario here, a big summer blockbuster style movie that is bringing back and, and riffing on some of the tropes of many, many things in the past, from Gulliver's Travels to 1950s movies. We're looking at a character named Cindy Butterhorn, in an egg McMuffin suburb of Cleveland. Cindy is really hoping for some sort of good change in her life. 
She's not coordinated and athletic enough to be a tom girl. She's a little bit too goofy and, in all honesty, not really quite smart enough to be a nerd. She's just an ordinary kid. And she's wondering what the heck. But she does believe in belief and the magic of dreaming. And to some extent, prayer. And she prays to grow up. Well, she gets her wish. Overnight, puberty hits like a sperm whale. Instantly, everyone starts looking at her and changing their thoughts about her. And then they start to realize she's growing and growing and growing. And she becomes like the 1950s colossal females. One of my favorite philias is macrophilia, the, the absolute enjoyment of colossal women. And she grows to be 60 feet high over a kind of dismal suburb of an Ohio city. She has some options in her life. One, perhaps an act of revenge. Why wouldn't you if you're 60 feet high and people had made fun of you or just you'd never fit in before? Well, you don't need to fit in anymore. You're not fitting in anymore. An act of salvation because she's actually a good kid underneath it and she still is a kid. And we've listeners, we've got to remember David is a just a monster master of splatter, mush, and artistic gore. So I've thrown this at him. And then, of course, there's the final showdown, King Kong style, because we can't let even of just this now very post-pubescent, at heart, only 12 or 13 years old, we can't let her walk around mid-America naked at 60 feet high. We're going to have to call in the military in some way, or something's got to be done. So you've got a couple of really crucial moments. You've got an act of revenge moment, an act of salvation or generosity moment, and the final King Kong on top of the Empire State Building, the Twin Towers, whatever sequence to end with. All right. See what I can do. Good. Okay. Got it. Let's go to your text. Atlantean slash civilization thinking. Imagine if all the humans who had ever lived were still present. Of course, in a way they are. What would this look like? Would the presences be somehow more ghostly and transparent the older the peoples are? Alternatively, would some peoples seem all the more vivid because we don't know much, if anything, about them? It's an interesting inversion. How possible is it to fully engage with this idea? So in this manner of thinking, the more well-known a person is as a ghost, the more transparent they become. That's what I because I'm thinking of it in terms of a kind of back to the future in the picture style scenario with the fading mm-hmm. picture. 
Um, so I want to touch on a few things. Well, first of all, would the presences be somehow more ghostly and transparent the older the peoples are? What did you mean by that? Well, I'll just give a little bit of background to this because I happened to encounter in uh, my hardware store, which is a small town hardware store, and they do sell everything sort of hardware-y, but they have a lot of old vintage signs and, and clever little meme sort of signs. And um, one of them is something that I'm sure people have seen. We're trying to run a civilization here. You know, and I, I, I walked past that and I thought, you know, I don't believe that's true. I really don't believe I mean, who's trying to run a civilization that that we know of? I, I think maybe you and me and our listeners, maybe. But I, I don't think that I mean, that's not what we're trying to do. I mean, look at the phrases that, you know, uh, I mean, Hillary Clinton makes famous the phrase, you know, it takes a village to abuse a child. Oh, I'm sorry, that's not quite the way she meant it, but you know what I mean. Uh, I don't think that we're actually thinking in civilization terms. And you and I have been on this beat for a, a few episodes now, and I really think it's important to look at that. I don't think we, I'm not just going to gorge up. Alfred North Whitehead's five principles of what makes a civilization. I encourage people to go find that for themselves. But I think if you do, you could say, well, I'm not sure where any of that is really working in, in our culture today. I think the best, most capable of us would be the least inclined to want to lead that charge, perhaps out of humility, perhaps out of uh, <laughs> lack of courage, perhaps laziness, perhaps just fear of their own uh, survival. But I, I don't think we're on that level of, of, of thinking civilizationally. But as I walked away, I realized that the crucial thing is that the models of civilization of the past and let's just think of some obvious ones, things that people generally know about. We'll say the Greeks, the Romans, the Egyptians, Chinese culture, the Aztecs and the Mayans in Mesoamerica. All of them were empires. There, I mean, there was a sense of unapologetic expansion and and a desire to rule and and to to be at the heart of the world by virtue of human will this is very different than people in the western highlands of papua new guinea who have only met some people you know in the last 100 years and they think that they're at the heart of the world we've talked about that indigenous sort of people's idea so we're now in a situation where we're, we're, we're praising ourselves for being sort of part of a civilization. But most of our intellectuals today, if we want to call them that, certainly all liberal people resent and, and reject the idea of civilization because they can't accept the notion of empire. They want an impotent empire, a, a kindness empire, an empire that makes no mistakes. And that is always in the right, you know, and well, that's not really what 
the Mayans or the Aztecs or the British Empire of the 19th century was all about. They're not accepting of the terms of a civilization, you know, and it's just not going to work out for everyone. And so we get this completely bastard idea of a village that is mutated into some sort of giant mush that is not a civilization. So I walked away from, from the hardware store window thinking, okay, well, David put forward last episode, I think a really beautiful rendition of what Atlantean thinking. And we we understand our idea is Atlantean is obviously metaphorical and whimsical and to somewhat, you know, rhapsodic, but it's inspirational. It's a challenge to us. What would civilization thinking be in actual thinking people who were raising the standard a little bit above herbal tea and NPR agreement on every subject? Well, it might be trying to think about all of the humans that have existed in the past. We earlier talked about Thomas Wolfe's, the early pages of, of Time in the River, when he talks about the fact that the ancient Egyptians are, you know, that woman is at the hair salon in Atlanta, you know, they're all around us. Who do we think we are? <laughs> you know, who do we... What the fuck? We are everyone who's ever lived. That's what our biology tells us. Because none of this stuff just erupted out of nowhere. It's a genetic river at minimum. But it's also probably a phylogenetic, cultural, ghost radio signal program, ceremony that we are still just the latest roadies and and performers in and i i did get to thinking well what would happen if you asked your average people what what the world would look like if everyone who'd ever lived well i think for starters there would be just enormous vacancies i think hollywood would have its impact of what we've seen and I think cavemen would, you know, would start to look kind of stupid, you know, and grunty and, you know, and they wouldn't be making beautiful arrowheads and they wouldn't be making an instrument that is both a bow, a weapon and a musical instrument. And they wouldn't be thinking about, well, what does a straight line mean? You know, none of that would happen. I think there'd be whole civilizations that would just suddenly appear and be demanding of our attention in an immigration style thing. You know, everyone, you know, the liberal point of view is let's just open our borders to everyone, you know? All right. Well, why don't we really do that? Why don't we really do that? Why don't we really push the past forward? And let's just try to imagine everybody, you know, Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I, I challenge some people to to even imagine some people from the central Congo right now in America. I think they'd got I think we would see hideous cliches. And I think that the, the war would be on between these ghostly appearing presences, wanting more and more presence and going, 
we are not your fucking cliche idea and your phantom transparency. You're the transparency to us. I love this so much. Uh, I will start by saying that you are unlocking a real key, I think, of um, ancestral, animistic, magical, lost explorers thinking by conceptualizing of these ghost civilizations that are lying in wait to be given voice. If you take it to the way that we use language, the destructive manner that conceptualizing of ourselves as having been cavemen who slowly but surely evolved into something approximating civilization. It's that it's that untrue idea to begin with that I believe puts a block like a bike lock on people's brains, because even if they're not thinking about it, they're thinking about it and they're conceiving of themselves as somebody who's no better than their basest monkey impulses. Right. And if you think about, you know, the Chinese have the the monkey king. Uh, we've been under the rule of the monkey king for millennia at this point. And there are other gods, other archetypes, other ancestral ghosts that are just waiting for you to find them. And that might be what gods are uh, in a certain sense. I like this idea of the, the god as an anthill agglomeration of ancestors. That's a really cool idea. Um, but what I like the most is this idea of how you could change your day-to-day -day waking up, taking a shower, going to work, playing with your kids, reading a book, life, by simply reconceiving from where you came. Where did you come from? Where did you used to be a monkey? Or did you used to be an Atlantean? And the moment we engage with that, I mean, just suppose for a moment, and, and, and I think what I love about this fellowship with you and our listeners is I think this is a chance for, for me to do this, to engage with that level of speculation rather than just the chit-chat, very small talk of day-to-day -day living, just that little moment of asking, well, you know, it's the Gauguin question, Gauguin's most famous painting, you know, who are we? Where do we come from? Where are we going? You know, and those are the questions. And it's amazing that they are mysterious, that we don't know more. Think about what we're pretty sure about. Mm -hmm. I mean, mm -hmm. I, I have tested the boiling point of water and the freezing point of water. I think those those measures are are really good. And I applaud the people who, you know, set that up. And I, I think those are not simple uh, ways to explain the world. I think they're good starting points for, for, you know, young elementary school science. I think they have a great beginning. But when we look at the things we don't know, it's a large part because we're not willing to speculate with each other. To, to put on the hoods of mystery and to engage in the idea, well, we don't know who we are. We really don't. But let's think about it. Let's just brainstorm out that possibility. What would it look like? Who would, I mean, who would start to appear forward 
and and how would we think of them? I mean, take the Assyrian people, for instance. And I have a student in my class who talks about this mythology because that's the part of the world that she's from. Well, my first thought is an idealized sculptural uh, wall motif approach to predominantly soldiers, I think. That's my first sort of, you know, my glimpse. But then I look at her and I think to myself, actually, well, that's another view right there, you know? Mm-hmm. And I, I, I think that there's so much richness in the God-inhabited magical nature on a very, very physical level. And I wonder if we're not projecting a force field of negation and contradiction because we just can't deal with that because it does flow through all the time. I mean, I can't look at you. I, I'm looking at you right now, and I can project you back onto the uh, the sh- onboard a ship in the 19th century British Navy. I can think of you in three or four other major parts of the world at different points in history. You know, I could I I, I see the time travel right there. You know. Um, and I think there is something about the kind of a peak of, of, of at your age and, and your, your, there are some reasons behind why I didn't think that when you were 24 or whatever, you know, uh, but I, I can see that now. I'm not having to imagine that. I think I'm actually seeing something real. And I think when people talk about the past lives phenomenon, what are you kidding? It's not past. It's like, what do you think's going on in your body right now? You know? That biology is ancient. It's starlight and mollusk, and it was unicellular once, and it's strange, and it's poisonous and venomous and pseudopodish, and it's got all sorts of things, you know? And, and we can't help all that. We're all part of a flowing, developing river cloud of possibility of developing floating river cloud of possibility. And that makes it a lot harder to separate people into identitarian camps, I think. Well, for you and me, I think absolutely it does for us. I don't know how people think that 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 works for them because that is at minimum, that has got to be such short-term thinking. You know, they've got to be putting down an artificial frame on this particular moment in order to to justify that in their own mental illness or health program. Absolutely. I think that um, once you get, I think that one of the major issues, and I think that you put it well and accessibly to listeners, but one of the major issues that people might have is that that is such a, a huge idea to wrap themselves around. And it's bringing to light the idea that the uh, caveman idea is much simpler to understand. Fire, wheel, woman, shelter. That is not a river cloud of 
possibility at all. That is just being sent away. But it's also, it is partially that as well. And I think that the one key takeaway that listeners need to understand is that this is as much as it is an explanation of a of a different way of conceptualizing of us and ancestors and all that is also an important way to think about the present. You know, I think the problem though, with all of the moments of breakthrough in the past, whether they're taken seriously or caricatured, cartooned, uh, or treated with enormous dignity and respect, like 2001 A Space Odyssey, which we spoke about last, my strange deal with the tapers and a lost British actor. Um, Around the corner from me in the Valley of Fire, there is a crucial petroglyph rock moment celebrating the notion of the spear thrower idea, which is a very big, you know, I mean, in... South Africa, Southern Europe, Australia, cultures discover this idea that there is a leverage point that, yeah, you can throw the spear with your arms, but if you just get a little tool, suddenly you get more velocity and distance. And it is very simple, but wow, wow, what a thing it is. And the ages of of human story and human distribution across the planet are you know our notion of it is very incomplete and and very uh probably wrong <laughs> at this point but we know that idea has occurred in different points just as the idea of a drum or the idea of of, of the arrow the bow and arrow uh again an, a remarkable a remarkable counterintuitive leap. I mean, that is just astonishing to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, it just, it's so beautiful. All I can hear is the sound of the things. Mm-hmm. And that is something that I think that everyone takes for granted because our educational system our notion of the village that is supposed to be that is trying to be a civilization doesn't inculcate, enculturate, and encourage support, nurture, and impregnate young spirit minds, bodies with the possibility of doing that themselves. Mm-hmm. And this is our going back to one of our original ideas of the crystal radio idea of doing some things yourself, making the mess, really supporting that that ground level family teaching uh, elementary school thing of, of from finger painting to models to, you know, I mean, you mentioned making a we- you know, the wheel. Well, you know, there's nothing really. I did a whole workshop with MIT people about making a wheel. And I can't tell you how great the frustration was. I did an outward bound thing about the same time, which was uh, a grueling outdoor survival, you know, very physical mountain thing. And the frustration, sadness, bitterness, crying, and, and physical challenge to that was far less 
been making the wheel in, you know, suburban Boston. Making a wheel that works out of nothing is very difficult. And I think that we we have allowed ourselves to take entirely for granted all of the origins of the magic that we depend on. This is one of our core themes. And until we get back to rediscovering that and encouraging people to find it again, and the, and the, the absolute sacredness of that personal experience of these insights, you know, where the home port and the horizon are one, where complementary ideas are really a living thing, not a binary, you know, anyone could say a binary, you know, but they're a living duality that is shifting like music and changing keys. Unless we get to that point, and we can only really do that on a very small scale. I think we could do that in 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 love relationships and friendships, uh, family, and on a very small scale in terms of education. But we we just can't deliver that on a larger society, and certainly not a civilization scale. We're failing at that utterly. Tell me, you said growing the swamp versus exploring it. You said back to Bergson and the problem of determining the content of a negative idea. Negative space, silence, word breaks. Are these core memory palace structuring techniques truly, quote, negation, unquote? Could a great deal of our cultural problems derive from overuse of the frame of negation and its fundamental misunderstanding? Yeah, well, okay, so I, I think Henri Bergson won the Nobel Prize as a philosopher. He covers a lot of ground. His work on memory greatly influenced one of our heroes, Rupert Sheldrake. Uh, he is an important philosopher who is a deeply humanist philosopher, one of the last major 20th century philosophers before they sort of streamed into kind of a lot of um, meta-philosophy. And, and uh, he wrote and, and was concerned about things that involve us all. And we talked in an earlier sequence of episodes about his notion of negation and thinking in terms of negative ideas. And not just that we don't like negative things because a lot of us do. If you want to put, you know, a negative frame on the shadows, the darkness, evil, you know, black magic, Lovecraft versus, you know, Winnie the Pooh. Mm -hmm. You know, there's a lot, of, all of that is just, is, is, is confusing. And because we, we obviously really, you know, groove on those things. So his first point was the notion of negation is confused categorically because there's a lot of really great things in darkness or alternatives to Pollyanna. But he put forward the notion that when we look very simply in logical terms at negation as a rhetorical communicative strategy that we end up having to take three steps as opposed to two or even better one and that builds up a level of confusion within language and 
enculturated ideas where the term negative starts finding its way into a whole bunch of places. Anybody who draws, try to draw a tree, you know, a bare winter tree. And you end up with the importance of negative space. Negative space isn't negative there. That's the wrong term to put on it. Try to play the saxophone or any musical instrument for a moment. You have a break, the notes, the breathing space. Well, the silence there isn't negation of sound or music or noise. That's not the right way to think of it. Word breaks. Well, anyone who's read Gertrude Stein's, some of her experimental work, can see the problem of like, well, actually having, you know, the convention, the printer's convention, you know, of spaces between words helps helps understanding. So that idea of negation, we apply that so generally without even thinking about it. This is, a, you know, it sounds like an intellectual idea, but but oftentimes people take this on board without thinking about it at all. And, and this is the thing, it just grooves and grits its way, you know, in deep bone grit and shell grit and metal grit and microplastic grit into our way of thinking so that negation is seen as kind of like this, uh, let's be positive, you know? That's the wrong way to think of it. And we get, in its worst form, we get like the archetype of male and female, you know? That is the simplistic sort of notion. And so many people start to go wrong. I mean, look at how, whenever Jordan Peterson tries to present some basic Jungian ideas, British newscasters and NPR people start going, oh my God, you know, they can't deal with it, you know. And I think that is a crucial, crucial problem. But the difference, the management of silence to note, word break to word, negative space, which is really a foreground and background issue if we were a little bit more neutrally, uh, alert. Those are key elements to how we structure coherence perceptually before conceptually. We do that. We need that just, you know, and you've seen that with your own son. That's how he's starting, you know, from the very beginning, how he was starting to formulate ideas of where he ends and the world begins and, and finding, you know, focus and balance you know, it's all about the management of those very, very, I hate to say neutral, but we we archetypalize them and we give them values and we put language on them that suddenly starts to confuse us from a very early age. And all we're really trying to do is like reach out and hold something and touch someone and perceive something and we need background, foreground. We need, you know, context, kairos in a rhetorical sense. And we we give those a lot of weird values. And I, I'm really starting to question where those values come from. Mm -hmm. uh, who's behind those values, you know? Right. So that's the starting point of that. Um, 
But I'm wondering if we just could get a hold of that and talk about those in a kind of classroom sort of sense, if we wouldn't start to see things a little differently. The first thing that it reminded me of is something that you hear in a lot of criticism of stories, of books, film, music. You'll hear that an ending, let's say, to a book negates everything that comes before it. That's a that's a common criticism. Yeah. And it's one that I have never in my life resonated with. In fact, I really like those kinds of endings. As you know, having read a few of my books, yeah, the, the endings tend to not flip everything on its head. They're not twist endings. They're not, you know, gotcha moments. But with my first novel, a lot of people thought that that ending in particular negated all of the stuff in the gulag before it. And that's just not how I've ever seen it. And in fact, that book in its own way is an exploration of white space and negative space and snow and tundra and blankness. And the key element to take away from it, the starting point, I think, is to wrap your head around the idea that negative space is not the absence of something. And a particular artistic choice or a life choice uh, does not negate what came before it. It can put it into relief, perhaps, but it doesn't erase everything that came before it. Um, the Do you remember exactly how Bergson articulated the negative as needing three steps to get to it? I'm, I'm interested about that, how it takes more uh, mental energy to get to the negative than to just not even do that. Yeah, well, the, the, the central idea is that if you present the positive, well, his first point is that it's not positive. It's just simply a presentation of something. So your first level of challenge as a negator is to argue against that positive presentation. Whatever it is, you know, there are no cow, there are zero cows in that field. Which is a weird right. way to think. Right, 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 you know? right, right. Well, so, okay, uh, he would say, well, you, so you were thinking you were expecting a cow to be in the field. OK, that there. So you're acknowledging the field, but you're saying there's no cow there. But we should have there should be a cow there. You're, you're saying there's a kind of rhetorical should. Yeah. You know? right. And this is a deeper argument with a lot of the kind of insipid uh, liberalism that that permeates language in the last you know, particularly in the last 150 years, yep. that it's just not gotten the level of inquiry and, and prosecution that it needs because it seems to be presented by, you know, caring, sensitive people with, with good brains. Fair enough. But yeah, everyone deserves a, a little bit of prosecution. The uh, second thing is, well, okay, let's say there are no cows in the field. 
Well, what value then does that statement have? Suddenly there is a value question that there wouldn't be if there, well, that's a one cow field. Well, you're not going to hear that expression, are you? You know, you're really not. And that's that, that would be kind of a nice bit of writing, I think. You know, this is a one cow field. It's a small town. These people are poor. You know, this is an outlying in a little farm. That might be a really great way to introduce a family story, you know, in a shack out in the middle of who knows where. But the idea then becomes there is a proposition and then a secondary proposition that have not been examined at all. Yeah. Yeah. And they are put forward as conditions that the negation has to deal with. Right. Right. You know? Right. And that makes that makes the next note make a lot of sense. Negation and inference. So in that case, then is negation a a good tool if your goal is that inference is to get people to perhaps think about why there are no cows in the field? say there's something going on there's a mad cow disease out there and you're passing it you say there's no cows out there the inference is that the mad cow got them so is it a useful tool in that respect well this is so fast like think about if you and i are driving along and say there are two other people in the car that we don't really know that well. Maybe they're journalists or something. Let's just imagine that. And we're driving, I don't know, in, in you know, across Oklahoma. And we both would say, well, there are no cows in that field. You know, and then think about what this, what the reaction to that would be. I mean, were, were we expecting cows, you know? But my notion of connecting negation and inference, I think is actually a really, really deep idea because inference is, is I think, the ultimate human skill, the ultimate human uh, failing, the ultimate human psychopathic condition and our, the essence of our magic. We're able to infer we're able to imagine, we're able to draw conclusions from no basis. We're able to imagine a universe in which we don't exist. No other creature that we know can do that. Uh, and yet we remain trapped within ourselves. Inference is a really, really potent, but also very strange, imprisoning capability. Negation and inference, and they are the dark magic at the heart of what we mean by conscious imagination. We can see what's missing. Can we? Well, that's kind of weird. Sometimes we can. How can you see what's missing? You know, that's that's funky. That's really crazy. You can see, oh, oh yeah, I, I can, you know, and we do that on multiple levels. We can see what's missing in a room. We can see what's missing in a, in a couple's relationship. We can see what's missing from a life. We can see, you know, a lot of things. And we can project with inference. But inference needs negation. It needs to have that oscillating tension. And it needs to be like two, I sort of imagine it like two really 
intense martial artists sharing a hallway and they're walking, you know, and they kind of, they don't want to collide. They kind of want to just keep walking, you know, and just shifting back and forth. But inferences is, is what, to a large extent, what we mean by intelligence. That's a universal truth to that. You know, what will happen next? Uh, we don't like to talk about intelligence in the West because there's, you know, all sorts of gender and racial sort of things and everything is enculturated. And But what we really mean by intelligence is, to a large extent, uh, an athletic gracefulness with inference. I'm halfway tempted to move my podium out of the room before the kids come in tomorrow and ask them if they notice if anything's missing. That seems like fun to me. Yeah. See, there you go. There yeah. you go. Well, you know, that's part of the deal. What's wrong with this picture? What's missing? What's what's missing? What is it? What an odd idea. What an odd idea. So your expectations have somehow been damaged. Oh, well, I'm sorry. That's kind of life, isn't it? But this is when we start to teach at this level. This is the this is where I'm obsessing on now. This is where my life path is going to at this point. Because I think it is so fundamental that these things do affect the deep semantics of our understanding of everything. That podium might be the key to rearranging whole mental structures. And if nobody notices it, I just won't say anything. Drive them nuts. <laughs> what is it? What is missing? I don't know. Well, you know, what you notice and what you don't notice, you know, that that's a factor of time. That's tempo. You know, that's, that's psychological tempo. I, I suggest that people do notice things. Mm -hmm. And they find the vocabulary for them over time. And we can't always do that for people. Some people have to find that for themselves. It's taken me 30 years to find a vocabulary and a tempo sense psychologically, not even a musical tempo, for some of the musical lessons I learned in college. You know, we don't find everything, you know, in, in one moment. Fortunately, most of us live, you know, a few a more than a house fly days. Yeah, you know, exactly. The timing. Exactly. I um Oh, shoot. What was it? I lost my thought. Gosh darn it. Um, come back. When it comes to... So inference is, is for the most part intelligence because it's your ability to, first of all, notice what's missing, play with the negative space, uh, and discern things. Oh, that's what I was going to say. On the note of things that we notice, I think that there is no depth to what we know and cannot articulate. I think it goes so deep that I think even people like, maybe people like the Buddha, if he was real, got close to it. Uh, I don't think any of us are necessarily meant to get that close to it, but I think little things, I think that a lot of diagnosed depression and anxiety that's going on right now, I think it's because of how intense the psychic field is getting exacerbated by 
4G and 5G technology and how much we actually know but can't articulate at the moment. I think that's what it is for the most part. That and also, you know, just people kind of being whiny about things. But um, so the negation and inference connection to me seems pretty obvious. I don't think I'm missing anything here. The uh, the ability to say that that field has zero cows is pretty strange and shouldn't be necessarily the way that you approach uh, your think all of your thinking and life uh, because it's not additive. It takes more steps to reach a negative. However, one part of negation is that it allows you to enact the act of of inferring about what is missing by noticing that. Am I with you so far? Am I missing something? Yeah, well, no, no. I, I think what, what we're talking about, to connect back to earlier episodes, we're talking about the oscillation between what we in our, in the show's terms, been talking about memory palace, structuring of knowledge versus the swamp, yep. the mystical realm of all the things we don't know which is obviously a little bit misty and and wreckage ridden and kind of mysterious. The oscillation between those modes of consciousness has to do with negation and inference. And inference depends on, on negation. And negation in many ways really has the same problems that memory does it's overused as an idea it's not examined it just gets mushed in in a whole bunch of situations and in some in in many cases negation is a tremendously positive thing but we don't take the time we don't stop because we're too busy having a civilization that we're not really a part of and don't have any understanding of uh, to really be civilized and Atlantean and break that down and think, no, that's that's actually not negative. There's nothing negative there. It's it's that's a that's the wrong way to think of it. That is absolutely the wrong way to think of it. And inference is a connective tissue idea. But I think that where uh, the next sort of point that I, I raise is. I think that we are torn between two extremely different oscillating but polar paradigms of filtration, editing, and censoring the overload of reality with the completion connection programs of inference, imagination, and memory. And that negation as an idea is a casualty with kind of in that no man's land between those and that oscillating thing. And if we could reclaim negation, we can, you know, I think that many of us have a moment of reclaiming or are experiencing minimalism in an artistic sense. You mentioned your first novel, you know, when we leave here, you know, it said in Guhon Tundra, you know, there's a lot of, I mean, I think that what impressed me the most about that, I think, first off, uh, as the first novel of, of a young writer, an unexpected first novel from an American writer, was an absolute sense of tundra. 
you know, that I could hear uh, that was resonating at a certain frequency. And I don't know if people know that, but but like the great deserts, well, certainly the deserts that I've been to, the Mojave and the Sahara and the Gobi, there's a certain resonance of higher latitude tundra that is absolutely real and sonic and you think oh my god there's something wrong with my you know you know there's this tintinitis or there's no it's not it's it's the negation of sound in a certain way but it's also that tuning fork resonance on another level and i remember you talking about your interest in tuning forks i think about that a lot in terms of that novel i don't think there's anything uh negational about that in any way i think there might be something revisional or revisionist and i don't think that's the same thing so recouping the negative you know because i'm sur- i've been surrounded by people my whole life who go well don't think negative you know you got to be positive you know everything's right you know and in a way I I think that is the most retardant, arresting, truly negational approach there is. And that when you start to see that differently and dimensionally, and you start to hear it, and you start to read it, and you start to intellectually appreciate it, and you start to physically actually fuck it, you know, there's a whole different, all of life is that, that polarity, that wonderful oscillation. And there's a lot of stupidity that t- tries to control how we think about that from a very young age. And if we try to break that down and do new Venn diagrams or new musical approaches to it, that is the essence of education. That is a perfect place for us to put a fork in the main conversation. We'll pick that up next time. Would you like to hear about my movie? Yeah. Big girl panties. <laughs> I want this movie. I want this movie to start off and for at least the first 30, if not 45 minutes, I want it to play very similar in tone to the popular early 2000s film Juno, in which, uh, <clears throat> what was her name? I can't remember the actress's name, but. Uh, it's about a young girl who gets pregnant, but it's very twee. There was a a tendency in that era to have, you know, Wes Anderson movies and things like that. It was all very cutesy and throwback. The, Juno talks to her friends on a phone that looks like a hamburger, that kind of thing. I want this to be like a, a completely saccharine, cute movie. Until, of course, she wishes to be big, much like Tom Hanks and and becomes big but before we get there the moment that gets her to wish to be big is that while cindy is ordinary in every way she does have a passion for music and she wants to be a part of the school talent show so she tries out amongst all of the people lip-syncing and juggling and eating fire she practices for weeks and weeks and weeks on end to do a perfect rendition of joe satriani's solo piece tears in the rain and she pulls it off perfectly at the audition and is still not picked. She finds out later that there were 10 open slots and she was the 11th. She was the only one that wasn't picked. Okay. So she becomes big and begins to enact her revenge first on the talent show, 
crushing all the children in the audience and swallowing a Michael Jackson impersonator. Then becomes her quest for salvation. In the first 30 minutes of the movie, you're going to see that uh, Cindy's mother is a very vain. Her, her mother is an older millennial and Ooh. as such is addicted to things like Snapchat and TikTok and Twitter and places like this, always taking Instagram photos of herself and tends to be a very vain person. So she picks her mother up and takes her on a journey across America. They see mountains, they ford rivers, they hike across, you know, the the Rocky Mountains. And the whole time, Cindy's mother is taking TikTok videos of her and making them famous and viral on TikTok, this huge giant girl in a woman's body. Uh the monster that the government sends after her is a Tetsuo agglomeration of cell phones that shoot Candy Crush jewels at her and have the ability to take her picture and freeze her in place. Now, this begins to make her first her eyeballs explode and her head crushes in and then her head actually goes all the way into her body. Her shoulders come together. She basically is folding in on herself and a blue moldy hairball ejects and splats onto the ground and then it cracks open like an egg and inside is the girl covered in new afterbirth with an acoustic guitar and we're taken out by her playing the entire four minutes of joe satriani's tears in the rain (laughs) oh my god well you know i don't see how listeners can have any complaints about the frontiers that we explore uh actually a, a kind of a higher brow sort of a, a take on on what might have been a very exploitation driven premise no i i love that in every way thank you i thought thank you were you, tasteful right? you know thank you yeah well I, I i try to i try to zig when you zag you know what I mean? So, and I think that that's when you find the true synthesis between between the minds, right? If you've got an idea that is, like you say, uh, kind of ripe for exploitation, boundary pushing, I want to get David Lynch with it and weird, and and see where we can see where we can take it. Um, I so, think you deliver. I think I'm you just delivered absolutely all right so you have a tool and a tip for us today yeah i have a couple of uh certainly one tool and then then a, a secondary one i just want to propose to people um we've talked about this often it's one of our ongoing themes of challenging the boundary between randomness and the arbitrary and I think one way to think of that is in the, in the idea of degrees of separation game. I think people would be familiar with that, that movie. I think that the Kevin Bacon idea of degrees of separation. Um, but if you really do do this, and it does connect back with the, the artist Mark Lombardi that we've mentioned mm-hmm. before, of just sort of these connections between things. I, you know, I thought I, I gave myself this challenge. I'm not going to explain where these ideas came from. I, I wanted to think that they're as, as random as possible. But 
Bob Hope's USO Tours. Grapevines. Plastic turkeys and ventriloquism. Now, I just assigned myself those challenges. And I mean, I, I think I am suggesting that behind <clears throat> the scenes, there may be some influencing architecture, structure, dynamic that produced those items. I, I think that's a, absolutely it. But I think that what we have to accept is that everything does connect, that old stoner idea about, you know, well, everything's connected. But how does that actually work? And where do those dynamics start to fall apart? And what kind of, of memory palace architecture are we imposing on the swamp of things that we don't know in order to get any kind of coherence? But the moment we put a little pressure on that and just put a little bit of investigation into this, I think that we can be rewarded. And again, I, I counsel people to keep a record before they delete any internet browsing or bookmarking. Keep a track of that. I think that we are giving ourselves a lot of clues to deep associative structures that lie below the surface of our consciousness that we can use and actually bring forward into a more inference-driven, positive life uh, that we can really take advantage of and, and, and begin to use as tools. As a strange complement to this idea, and here again, I, I'm not sure of the dynamic of this, but... For whatever reason, I was in the presence of a group of people kind of in my cohort, so to speak, in an entertainment capacity. And I thought, well, I'm just not going to miss the opportunity to learn something about, you know, what's going on. And I'm I'm a shit stirrer and I want to find out things. And and for whatever reason, we I turned the conversation towards a topic that you can see on all your internet browsing, no matter what your age is, you know, ads from the past that are deemed offensive now. That's a category that you can see. I mean, Fox does it, CNN does it, MSNBC, you can see it everywhere. You know, all you have to do is Google on, you know, ads from the past, you know, they're, they're usually print magazine ads, but you can also look at TV ads. Uh, that are, you know, that were really quite iconic in their time, but that would be seen to be, you know, outside the bounds now. Okay. If you actually spend a, a few moments talking about those, as in, as you would in a classroom sense, supposing that you're able to do that. Well, why are they so offensive? What happens? What do people actually say? And I think that what you'll find if if you if it's at all possible to do this with kind of friends or neighbors or you know the family members that you're on the level of maybe you know being relaxed enough with to to actually have a kind of chat open speculative discussion with almost invariably I think what happens is that if you see past the initial label of, well, that's just offensive. Well, what then? It's actually kind of funny, 
it's still sort of probably true. And it, it makes a point. Is it really like what, you know, and I think that the whole program of today and wokeness starts to look embarrassingly fragile, inept, and absolutely simplistic at an almost uh, childlike in in a negative sense way. And I, I don't mean negative space. I mean, in like an immature way, there's no substance to whatever. And where there are differences there, then I, I suspect you are actually flushing out some of the major issues of our time that if we could talk about them, we'd go, well, those were just absolutely completely psychopathic in their own time and they remain psychopathic or sociopathic. So I don't know if those two things gelled together as a tool, but I think what I'm talking about is really spending a little bit more time using our intellect, our curiosity to investigate some things and where possible to use some of our friends and cohort as social tools for our inquiry and to hopefully support their inquiry. Yeah, just asking simple why questions about things and not accepting because it's offensive or because it just is as uh, as an answer. I think that's a great tip or a tool rather. What is your tip? Okay. Well, the tool the tip is very straightforward. Every once in a while. Perhaps like a Sunday afternoon. Make some gooey pull-apart monkey bread or Texas sheet cake and all your chainsaw. You know, I think that people, particularly like us, we need to remember the need to do some things with our hands outside our... I mean, I, I, I'm not a gooey pull-apart monkey bread sort of guy. But I thought, well, damn it. It's not like that's outside my complete purview of possibility, you know? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think if we get down to some of these crystal radio, basic garage level, front yard, backyard levels, we start to feel a bit more empowered and we start to feel a little bit more strengthened in some of our deeper speculations and imaginative journeys and, you know, adventures off into the cosmos I mean, it, it really is important to have a thought about, well, what kind of oil on the chainsaw, you know, and and, and really, OK, check, you know, Texas sheet cake or, or monkey bread. Well, that then suggests a sociality because you're not going to eat that, you know, all by yourself. You know, you're going it, to it, it's a generosity of engagement. I think that the biggest thing that I notice about the so-called intellectual artistic people nearer my age than yours and what you are completely the counter to is a generosity of spirit i think you have that i think a lot of people in my framework that i've traveled with and i've kind of lost touch with in many cases there are a few notable exceptions it's a it's a lack of generosity of spirit and it's a lack of sociality and connection and hospitality 
and engagement of, uh, you know, that willingness to listen and, and to say, well, you know, if you ask someone, well, what's up? And, and, and they don't give you a straight up answer. You know, you think, well, okay, I might actually have to sort of talk about some other things to get to what's really bothering David in this moment. You know, because something really that relationship is important to me. And it's not that he's trying to avoid it, but maybe the articulation of that is difficult. But it's that the the time spent doing that. And, you know, in the old days, maybe I would have just served you some bourbon or whatever. But now maybe it's like, oh, let's have some monkey bread or, you know, what kind of oil do you think I should put on this chainsaw, you know? (laughs) And I don't know, but my point is just taking the time to find the best oscillation with people on an individual level. It does take energy, and we're all challenged that way. But if we if we if our priorities really are in tune. I think we'll know what to do on that front. But there ain't no shortcomings to that. There ain't no shortcuts, you know? And your priorities become aligned through these simple tactile catalysts, essentially. You know, it's it's a it's a tuning fork, if you will. Yeah. I I have been excited to share this weird dream with you. Tell all me all week. All right. There's a lot of typos, so if I stumble, it's because I'm trying to figure out what the hell I wrote. Trying to get home, but there's a storm. Sky-high tangle of blue and brown twisted metal divides the road. I climb over it and steal a truck. Big and white. It's got a whole store in the back. I drive it like crazy. It reminds me of, I wrote, Construction El Paso Highway. There's a very specific part of West El Paso that's been under construction for 10 years, and it's it's got a very unique-looking geography to it. I abandoned the truck once. Everything is okay, but the owner of the truck is a psycho. He's after me. I wipe it down with a strange wipe. <laughs> I don't know why a strange wipe makes me laugh so much, but this is in this is this is three twenty a.m. Yeah, a, str- a strange wipe. Oh, it actually it literally is three twenty uh, when I wrote this. Um, a small tornado rolls in, and I say that I'm imagining it, and the people around me tell me that that they know, but it hits close, and I feel the impact. They tell me. Don't doubt what my eyes see. So I kidnap the truck owner, chain him up, and set a pit bull on him. And he begins instructing me on how best to get the pit bull's jaws to latch onto his neck. Later on, I go to work for a company working on the Indiana Jones franchise. Someone I know is there and tells me that they promised us that the guy that the guy promised that we could make the movie. uh, But the boss comes in and says that my phone keeps ringing and someone is hanging up. I go to find the phone, pick it up. And it's the truck guy telling me that he'll never leave me be. You know, a part of me just wants to just go and, and, and do, 
like a very odd mix of sort of country western with a peculiar new African underlay music to that with just your voiceover. I really love that. I, I think that might almost, I think we should just, uh, that's just so odd. And I like a, the idea of a strange wipe. I was cracking up when I read that dream back to myself because it seemed in the moment, it seemed imperative that I write that it was a strange wipe. I can't remember why the wipe was strange, but apparently it freaked me out enough to make a note of it. Look, I think we should leave that there because my dream contribution this time, it does actually go into some some dream specifics, but it has more to do with, I think, bringing together some of my theoretical ideas on the nature of dreams, what kind of state of mind they reflect, how certain levels of thinking and preparation and kind of lucid dreaming as an exercise impacts or doesn't impact on dreaming i thought that was just lovely as is and i just heard that kind of harmonic kind of almost like a rye cooter sort of paris texas and then uh dakar west african sort of thing i really enjoyed that a strange wife <laughs> all right till next time folks and I will introduce next time what I am. I, I I I lied about just having one aphorism. I've had a really I had about five, but next time I'm going to roll out and float because we're wanting to. David and I are both teachers. Our our condition is we learn something from our students. We always want to nurture and and also get something back from the listening community. So next time I will have, I think what is, I've got a million, but I, I, my latest version of the Lost Explorers motto is something that I think is really cool. So we might kick that in next time. But thanks everyone again. This was very, very uh, enjoyable. It was a strange wipe. <laughs> <laughs>